Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. Science is moving towards convergence. We can't depend on one type of science alone. We need to bring all science together to solve a problem. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Today, I have the great privilege of hosting a conversation with Dr. Victor Zhao, president of the National Academy of Medicine. Among many elements of his distinguished career, he's Chancellor Emeritus and James B. Duke Professor of Medicine at Duke University and past president and CEO of the Duke University Health System. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Zhao in a number of capacities, and I just have to say I've enjoyed every single one of them. So it's great to be able to have this conversation. In February of 2021, the health affairs issue includes six papers prepared as part of the National Academy of Medicine's Vital Directions for Health and Healthcare Initiative. That initiative began before the 2016 election and led to, at the time, a series of papers covering 19 health priorities for a new administration. The National Academy of Medicine renewed the project in advance of the 2020 election, once again looking to help set the course for the nation's policymakers. Dr. Zhao is the lead author of an overview paper that describes the initiative and draws themes from the various papers, covering topics ranging from care for elders to responding to infectious disease threats, building a better system to treat mental health conditions and substance use disorders, and more. So we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about this initiative and other topics in health and healthcare. Dr. Zhao, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alan. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Well, let's take our listeners back to 2016 when the Vital Directions Initiative began. What was the thinking behind launching an initiative like that? 2016, as you know, was the last presidential election. So back really at 2015, the National Health Medicine, which was by that at that time quite new because it became NAM from Institute of Medicine, we thought that it's an opportunity for us to advise the incoming administration on the many challenges in health and healthcare, as well as opportunities. So uh, not knowing who would be elected, we put together a bipartisan group to work on truly nonpartisan ideas of what healthcare and health needs. In that regard, we put together a stellar steering committee of people like Bill Frist, Tom Dasho, Mike Levitt, Ellis Lahuni, Peggy Hamburg, Mac McClellan, and many others, and also experts who are not in the previous administrations. But the idea is to think broadly to say, what does this nation need for the next four years? And so we came up, as you said, a slate of ideas which engage 150 experts, 19 papers that cover the whole spectrum of what's needed. So that was the thinking behind it. And certainly, as we thought about, we and made overarching recommendations in directions such as pay for value, empower people, activate communities, and connect care. And I, our idea would be that the new administration and policymakers will look at these reports, and they are very succinct recommendations after each topic, and then together, how we put the pieces together. That's what we're thinking at that time. So important to point out that the project began when you didn't know who the president was going to be, and you did the same thing in 2020. Talk about what led you to want to do this yet again. It sounds like an awful lot of work. Well, I would say that we know our last four years, uh, we had Trump administration 
and a Congress, certainly a Senate, which is primarily Republican. But our work was still very impactful. I certainly had the opportunity, together with some of my colleagues on the committee, to see major leaders of the Senate of both Democrat and Republican side. And what became really useful was during the big debate on repeal. That uh, Those reports were really helpful for us to engage in discussion with the House and Senate, privately, of course, not testimony, in terms of arguing these issues. And, you know, it's quite easy to imagine the arguments when you think about the need for the nation to have the best health care, the need for the nation to have uh, health coverage, the importance of value, pay for value. So actually it was helpful, in my opinion, despite the discourse in being able to speak to the number of leading senators, many of whom that you know have been central in the debate. Now I said your question about 2020, based on that experience, we thought we should definitely do it again. Again, not knowing which administration, our question becomes a lot of things happen in four years. It's time to refresh this and look at what our needs are for the nation. So that's actually where I was about to go, which is, I have to say, it just feels so different than it did four years ago. Obviously, COVID, but there's also a lot of continuity. I mean, the issues you described, value, engagement, uh, those haven't gone away. So how do you think about what's changed in four years? What's the same? Well, you know, many of us in healthcare and medicine watched the trends of this country with big concerns. And rather than doing 19 papers, we said to ourselves, what happened the last four years? And this is not any specific allegation about administration. It's just the trends were worrisome to us. For example, as you know, our life expectancy flattened and in and certain segments of society has gone down. And this is really of great concern. In that regard, we know the deaths of despair that came within the last four years, at least it came to four, the addiction, opioid crisis, you know, obesity, diabetes, alcoholism, great concern for us. Then there were things like maternal health. I mean, we ranked the worst among industrialized nations in that regard, great concern to us. And of course, healthcare costs continue to rise. And, and of course, let's not forget, even though our life expectancy is going flatten or going slightly downwards, there's an increasing population of older population. And so, and we're not paying enough attention. And to a large extent, COVID has unmasked this problem with this population. So therefore, we had one on the older adults, health costs, but of course, COVID, infectious outbreak. And we can talk a lot more about this, but I think those were the issues that we thought was the trends that we really worried about. So we decided to focus this time and not to do all everything, but to pick these five topics to say, what do we need? And Alan, by the way, thank you for being such a great partner. I think Health Affairs stepped right in. We worked with JAMA last time. We're so glad we're working with you this time in publishing those papers because you are, you know, certainly Health Affairs thought to be the premier 
policy journal. And then more importantly, we're going to do, as we did last time in 2016, a convening and discussion, inviting, hopefully, the current administration to engage in our discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you for those kind words. It's been great working with you on this project, and we're proud to be the place that uh, the papers are published. I like the way you describe this. It's sort of the 19 uh, papers from 2016 are a foundation, and many of those topics, although things always change, but they're, they're really timeless. And so in 2020, you, you focused on the question of what are the emerging concerning trends that need a, a sort of a booster, if you will, uh, rather than trying to redo everything. That makes a lot of sense to me. You did make reference to the deaths of despair and particularly the opioid epidemic. That That's always felt to me as, as, as a topic that burst into uh, our, our, our world, was getting tremendous attention until COVID came and, and overshadowed it. But the, the National Academy of Medicine has a sustained effort in this area. I, I, I hope you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is exactly it. I'm sure we're going to talk about the vulnerable population uh, overall in our health environment and specifically during COVID. They it really unmasked if not highlighted many of these issues, and certainly the um, opioid or drug addiction is one of them. Because after all, this population is truly vulnerable. They usually affect, uh, it's sure they affect all socioeconomic strata, but they do affect the people who in fact are economically and socially more challenged and uh, in their conditions. These people really need care. Access is a problem. And you can imagine that during COVID, access is real difficult, particularly many of the individuals need access in terms of in-person physical access. That is, you know, the need for access to treatment, the need for social services, the need for many. Stigma also others. So I think that they are disproportionately affected during COVID, no question. Now, we already have an action collaborative call on opioid, and in fact, this was convened over two years ago, before COVID, and we had the pleasure or the honor of having Brett Jiwa, who's in charge of opioid at the HHS to be co-chair, along with uh, Ruth Katz from Aspen Institute and Jonathan Perlin from HCA. And this group has really started working, looking at how do we address this whole issue. And during COVID, we ramped up our activities to look at how we can provide the kind of support for this population. As a background, we looked at why NAM? Well, because there's no shortage of activities around this problem, but the coordination and the collective action was perhaps missing. That is, feds are doing this, state doing this, individual organization doing this. So we're lucky to do a public-private partnership by bringing together everybody in the FEDS, not only at Merojet Reservoir, but also CDC, NIDA, SAMHSA, VA, you know, you name it, all part of this. But we also have all the various organizations involved with opioid, ranging from nonprofit to actual organizations involved with delivery of care and education. 
when we came together, we say, what are the missing pieces that we can do uniquely that people are not doing? We came down to the following. One is uh, we need really strong prescription guidelines for treatment of acute pain. And that's not only about using opioid, but using non-drug you know, drug interventions. But the FDA, um, Scott Gottlieb asked us to do a whole framework of how do you create guidelines for different conditions of acute pain. We also look at chronic pain, particularly looking at what to treat with chronic pain. And one of the things we did is look at tapering guidelines to get people off the drugs, and particularly if they are in treatment, right? And then we also looked at education. We realized what's really missing in the nation is a well-coordinated and standardized education for the health providers. So we looked at undergraduate, medical education, nursing education, you name it. We also bring together the accreditors, uh, the various state medical, nursing, dental boards to start thinking about how to uh, really start creating the right measurements. We look at stigma, and of course, a big part is prevention, treatment, and recovery. Let me just say briefly about what we did during this time. During crisis, COVID crisis, as you can imagine, there's a lot of need to do telehealth, and certainly if people can have access to that, that would be great, and to cross-disciplinary, cross-state practices. We have convened uh, together with FSMB, the state medical board, but also dental, pharmacy, and others together to talk about how can we make this easier for actually treating with drug addiction. So things like that. Well, it's a good place for us to take a quick break. 2021 is shaping up to be a big year in healthcare. Our battle with coronavirus continues. There are other coronaviruses waiting for us. In capitals from DC to Denver, new leaders and lawmakers are bringing their agendas to town. The states need to have the courage to stand up on behalf of their citizens. Trade-offs is here to take you through the policies and programs and will introduce you to the people whose lives they shape. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Trade-Offs, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Victor Zhao about vital directions for health and healthcare. One of the uh, overarching themes that you identify in your paper is equity. I'd really love to hear your take on why you drew that out as a cross-cutting theme and the implications of having that as a theme. Well, if you look at the baseline of start with health care, it's about access, affordability, and quality. We know that, in fact, people who are more socioeconomically challenged have much more difficult to have access. In fact, many don't have health insurance coverage. And affordable medicines, and of course, quality suffers when you don't really have access, et cetera. But you look at health as a whole, we all recognize that healthcare is only 10, 20% of determinants of health. So many other factors, so-called social determinants, are influencing health, such as jobs, housing, food security, you name education, you name it. So it's become very clear to me, equity is central to all this issue. That is, those who have the opportunity to gain 
the support access of these multisectoral determinants and those who do not. So equity is central. And COVID actually highlighted a lot more, even from the baseline. That is, as you know, communities of color. And by that, I'm not talking about per se skin color or genetics. It's actually many of the people, as we did in our vaccine allocation, look deeply into it. It's the same vulnerability index that affects people of color as, in fact, the people with vulnerable population. Why? Because tend to be living in poorer conditions, doing jobs that none of us would do. You and I sitting in a room doing, you know, virtual discussion. But people are doing frontline, doing the work, obviously exposing them to greater danger. Issues of schooling, you know, you name it. I mean, you can imagine the challenges of this population. So equity is very clear. It's the foundation are the fundamental challenge we face in everything from healthcare to health and certainly during COVID. You know, you and I mostly interact around policy because that's my field, but I've, you probably don't know this, but I've seen you give talks about scientific advancement. First of all, you are first and foremost a quite accomplished scientist. And when I hear you talk about the potential contribution to human well-being, around the advances of science, I, I have to say it's incredibly powerful. And in some ways, for me, more inspiring than policy, which is so messy and back and forth and partisan, this is knowledge. You've been really outspoken about the role of science and the importance of science in policy and in human advancement. Give our listeners a thumbnail of what I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak about for you know extensive uh, presentations. Well, you know, I think uh, when you think about science, there is, first of all, the discovery that is really in trying to gain knowledge and discover new knowledge and new ways of doing things, which, as we all know, has been extraordinarily impactful in terms of coming up with new treatments, new diagnostic, look at the vaccine. And uh, that's really transformed medicine, if you will. But science needs to go way beyond that. And I want to talk about two aspects. One is science that can help us make decisions, policy. Again, starkly demonstrated it's COVID, that public health is based on science and decisions should be made based on science. And as you all know, when leaders don't make decisions based on science or politics, the nation suffers. So we at the National Academies very much be believe in evidence-based, science-based recommendations. So that's what we do. The other one is science and society. We can't do science for science alone. We have to understand how science impacts society. And as you said, there are many upsides in science which can transform the way we do things. Think about, again, the new drugs, the telehealth, the digital world and whole bit. But there are also sometimes uh, unintended consequences that I believe scientists and certain national academies need to address and pick up things that, such as equity, ethics, privacy, and many other areas. So at the National Academies, again, we now have a active committee on emerging science, technology, innovation, and health and medicine that specifically look at when you have new technology, human genome editing, or even 
brain-computer interface. When this is just being developed, what kind of things do we need to bring in? Not just the regulation as we think about it traditionally, FDA, etc., but also the whole issue of social impact, societal implications. So that's really important. So the final point I want to make is science is moving towards convergence. We can't depend on one type of science alone. We need to bring all science together to solve a problem, convergent science. And increasingly, I believe social behavioral science is so central in everything that we do. Perhaps the scientific world has not put as much weight in this area. We need to. So convergence, but particularly bringing all disciplines, whether it's law, economics, but importantly, social behavioral science to health and medicine. Health and medicine cannot solve this problem without working with the rest of sciences and the rest of society. It kind of closed the loop that you and I talked about very beginning about society, equity, issues like that. I think we need to bring science to the solution of these issues. Wow, that's just so interesting. And I'm thinking as the leader of the National Academy of Medicine in the United States, although you do have global members, you interact with comparable leaders around the world. I wonder if you have some tidbits of challenges they're facing that resonate or approaches they're taking that you think, wow, it would be so interesting if we could adopt those in the U.S. That, that global perspective is so important. I think that all scientific leaders and all health leaders face many of the same issues everywhere in the world. And we can see those trends of nationalism. We can see the trends of politicization of science, misinformation, you name it. So my colleagues around the world are no different than us facing many of these issues. Perhaps they live in somewhat different political environment. Some are better, some are worse. But I think overall we have the same passion and commitment and value in discussing this. So what exactly is it? I think science has lived in an environment of trust, environment of uh, collaboration, partnership, transparency, and solidarity. So when you ask me about uh, what we can learn around the world and what we can do together, I'll say we need to move from nationalism to multilateralism. And scientists are quite ready to do that, but sometimes politically it's very difficult, for example, to have open dialogue with certain countries, China and others, mainly because of the political environment, not the scientists themselves. But, you know, we're not going to solve the, any of the problems, certainly not COVID and others, without multilateralism. Scientists spend a lot of time thinking about their own work, but increasingly they think about how to make a difference in the world. So equity is an important issue. And we need all to work together to achieve that equity for everyone. And therefore, we need to embrace scientists from Africa, and low-income countries, as well as the same old, you know, high-income countries where, you know, many of scientific work dominate. And finally, I think scientists all now begin to understand the importance of social sciences. And you see that everywhere, whether it's India, Africa, you name it. And I think increasingly we need to bring these things together. 
So I am very bullish on signs. We do, we do need to know that we have a increased sense of responsibility and create a social contract that our work should not only be advancing knowledge, but advancing knowledge for the good of human beings. Therefore, be willing to also look at the flip side of science. How's it helping us, but how's it hurting us? And begin to address those issues. Well, you've sort of uh, tipped your hand already, but I want to close with one last question. If I've done my math right, uh, you've got about five more years in your second term, which just started about a year ago. So you're, you have uh, completed one six-year term and are just starting your next. Not saying this will be the last, but if you look ahead to when you finish your tenure, whenever that may be, what do you hope you'll be able to look back over those years and say, this was the primary accomplishment of my tenure as president of the National Academy of Medicine? Well, Alan, I want to emphasize first that National Academies are organization to serve the nation and globally. You shouldn't see us as a group of distinguished scientists, eggheads that think about academia. I think our main role, and we found it, to advise the nation and now globally, but we believe more in advising. We really want to work with people to have actions to make a difference. Secondly, my job, when people say, you're the president of NAM, I say, I'm here to serve the academy and serve the nation and globally. That's how I see it. So it becomes quite, to me, you know, you can call it whatever it is, legacy, you name it. But I feel that at the end of my next term, I would like to be able to say that we did well by our people everywhere. That's what we're here to do. And so the idea of being ready to look at today and what's in the future. We better prepare the world, humanity for all of that. Being able to think about the whole issue of racial equity and uh, that's key. Think about the people that we serve and people that we grow. And as I said, think about all of society, how we can bring science and medicine to the betterment of society. Well, that's a beautiful legacy, and uh, you're clearly long on your way to achieving it already. Uh, Victor, it's always a pleasure to work with you. It's a pleasure to have this conversation, and uh, I'm very appreciative you took some time out of what I know is an incredibly busy job to be my guest on uh, Health Policy. It is a great pleasure uh, speaking to your audience and Alan in spending time with you. I've always enjoyed it. You're also a beacon in the field of health and medicine, so thank you. It's very kind. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.